And so, God, as we turn our attention to your word now, we ask that you'd be with us. Spirit of God, lead us into the understanding of your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There are two things I never seem to know. I'm never exactly sure when we're done a song. So sometimes I hang out here, sometimes I'm surprised over there, and I never know when my wife and kids are serving downstairs. They just got up and left. I'm like, oh, I guess they're downstairs today. So they're here, then they're not here, but they're here just in another part of the building. Um, secondly, uh, I was actually a moment ago thinking to myself, how am I going to do this? I've got like a 35-minute sermon. I've got 20 minutes because I was thinking of these 75-minute sermons, but we're now back into 90-minute sermons. I am so relaxed. I feel great. I was looking at the clock literally a few minutes ago because for two years, at one point, we were doing 20-minute sermons. I'm like, Lord, help me, right? Because that was tough. And then today, I was like panicking because I'm like, we've got three songs at the end. We've got a response. What have I done? How have I miscalculated this today? What's going on? And then I just felt the Lord say, you got time. I'm like, oh, yeah, I do. Have you ever believed that someone is beyond the grip of God's grace? You ever believe that someone is beyond the grip of God's grace? Maybe you've believed it because they've intellectually challenged the gospel. They've been opposed to it. And in their articulation of their opposition, you're like, wow, whew, that person, they're just so far from God. Maybe, maybe you've believed it because of experience they've gone through, and out of those experiences, they've expressed a hatred for God. They abhor him. Maybe it's out of suffering, I mean, we, we heard today about Derek's mom who suddenly passed, Katie's dad who battled cancer for a long time and succumbed to it this week. And, and at times there are people who are incredibly bitter because of suffering that has gone on. And you meet with them and you talk with them, and you're like, wow, whew. Maybe it's because of their sin-entrenched life. They, they just so love their sin. They're so caught up in their sin that you're like, yeah, there's no way. And you know maybe intellectually that God can save anyone, but you don't pray for them the way you know you should be praying for them for. And somehow in the middle of it, you actually don't really believe that God can grip their heart. In essence, you've written them off. You know, that's what the church had done with Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. They had written him off. I mean, we see that in the text. They're terrified when he shows up. Terrified. Terrified. And they have a hard time believing at first that God has converted him, that God has actually grabbed the hold of his life, that God has actually saved him. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. We're going to walk through 31 verses today. I'm going to stutter step through it. Meanwhile, Saul while was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. We've now seen Saul a couple of times through the book of Acts. He was there in the stoning of Stephen, giving approval to his death, which doesn't just mean that he agreed with it. He somehow had the authority to believe that this was the right thing to do. And so we have Saul having shown up there. We then have him shown up in chapter 8, verse 3, where it says that he went about destroying the church. Did you catch that word? Saul was destroying the church. He actually went, it says, from house to house, dragging men and women out of the homes and off to jail. Well, that's pretty intense, isn't it? I mean, that's how much Saul hated the gospel. 
That's how much he hated Jesus. So he goes to the high priest. Now, the high priest, though they're under Roman rule, still has a great deal of authority. And the high priest can grant authority specific to their religion. So he goes to the high priest, and although Saul knows he can't have them killed, and they shouldn't have killed Stephen, they should have had Roman approval to do that, but they did anyway. He says, I want letters. Saul's not just satisfied with destroying Christianity in Jerusalem. He's like, they've gone to Damascus. I'm going there to get them. And I'm going to drag them back and put them in prison. That's how much Saul hates the gospel. This is the first time in the book we see us being called people that belong to the way. You'll see it a number of times in the scriptures. Maybe it's partly because Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. Why is Saul so opposed to this? Well, let's think of Saul. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader, part of the Sanhedrin. He has studied the scriptures. He would have whole portions of the Bible memorized, completely and utterly memorized. And he came to the place where he's like, no, there's no way that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, the Bible's really clear. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He talks about this in Galatians. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, hangs on a tree, and Jesus hung on a tree. It's not possible for him to be the Messiah. So Saul was convinced in his reading of the Bible that Jesus could not be the Messiah. That means, as someone zealously devoted to God, that he believed with all of his being that all of these Christians were lying about God. They were lying about who God is and what God has done. And he believes that is punishable by death. He believes he needs to go out and rectify this. He believes he needs to go out and persecute these Christians. Because so many people, including priests, are coming to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that now they're going out and saying, we're going we're gonna to destroy the church. But he believes it passionately with all of his heart. He's confident Jesus is not the Messiah. He's confident they're leading people astray. He's confident that he has the truth. That's why he's doing this. It's not just some hobby on the side. It's not just that he doesn't like Christians. He's convinced to the core of his being that Jesus is not the Messiah and that everyone is being led astray from Yahweh. And he's zealous for the glory of God as he understands it through the whole Old Testament that he would have read over and over and over and over and over again. And like I said, had huge portions memorized. As he neared Damascus on his journey, a light fell from heaven. This is verse 3. And it flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. As Saul is approaching Damascus with his entourage, the group that's traveling with him, a voice calls out from heaven. Now, we know from the other accounts, this account is given in its entirety three times in the book of Acts. That means that Luke loves this account. Once here and then twice in the trials of Paul, this is given. I said Paul because he becomes Paul in, in the next little while. Saul right now. 
A voice from heaven cries out, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul knows, recognizes with a blinding light with everything that's going on, this is God. And he says, who are you, Lord? In this moment, he realizes that whoever is speaking to him, he actually doesn't feel like he knows. Who are you, Lord? Imagine when Saul heard this. I am Jesus. Imagine what would have been going through Saul's mind. Imagine all of the undoing of everything he had believed and everything he had convinced himself to believe. Imagine in that moment when he heard, I am Jesus, all of a sudden, everything he had convinced himself of was falling apart, was just completely being undone. And Saul, you're persecuting me. Saul, you're persecuting me. I mean, he would have been cut right to the heart. Now he says, get up and go into the city. You will be told what to do. But when Saul goes to get up, what's happened? He's blind. Completely blind. I mean, he leaves Jerusalem confident, completely and utterly confident in his ability to persecute the Christians. And he arrives in Damascus humbled, being led by people because he can no longer see. Verse 9. Well, for three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he said. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man named Tarsus, uh, from Tarsus, sorry, named Saul. He is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He, he has come with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show how much he will have to suffer. I will show him how much he will have to suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. For three days, Saul was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. When was Saul converted? Was Saul converted in that moment on the Damascus road? Or sometime during these three days? I want you to note this. Everyone assumes he was converted in that moment on the Damascus road, but we don't know that. Why did God leave him blind for three days? Why blind? Because now Saul was dependent on the very people that were around him. He was led into Damascus to be there with a group of believers, with Christians. And what would Saul have done not eating or drinking? Now he's not eating or drinking anything. Why? And he's blind. I imagine all Saul did for those three days was reflect and think about all the things that he thought about God that were now wrong and the ways that he needed to be able to think about God. He, began, he, knew, he knew the Bible. He didn't need to open up scrolls to read it. He'd have had whole portions, large portions of Scripture memorized. 
And so he's thinking about the Messianic Psalms uh, and thinking about the, 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 the Messianic songs and thinking about the, the prophecies of the Messiah all through the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, all of it's coming to him. All of these things he'd heard about Jesus, all of these things he's learned about Jesus, and what else would have come to mind for Saul in these moments? Stephen's speech. I said a few weeks ago when I preached through that part of Acts that Luke talks about how in the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, how he researched and he interviewed people who were eyewitnesses to this account because Luke wasn't. And we know in Acts, when we get to Acts 16, we go from Luke saying they did this, they did that, to Luke saying we did this. Luke moves to an eyewitness. He's a traveling companion of Paul. And likely we have such a long speech of Stephen recorded in the book of Acts, not just because the Holy Spirit guided him in the way to write it, but that is true, but also because Paul would have explained it to him. Paul would have said it, and it stuck with Paul. It's why I think Paul's mentioned there. And so Paul's now in the dark. He's not eating or drinking. He's come face to face with the risen Savior. And he thought he was persecuting for God, and he realized he's persecuting against God. He thought his actions were bringing God glory, and he realizes that his actions were bringing him disgrace. He thought what he was doing was for the kingdom, and he realizes that it was the very opposite, and he would have just completely undone it. And I imagine in those moments, he just thought over and over and over again of all of the different messianic promises, and he was thinking through Stephen's speech. And I don't know if it was in that moment on the road when he went with them. I don't know if it was in the first day of blindness or the second. We hear that he has a vision. He knows someone's going to come and heal him. But somewhere along that moment, in those days, God saves him. God radically grips his heart. But I believe he leaves him blind to be able to be contemplative, to be able to be thinking, to have no distractions. He's just wrestling with what's going on. Well, God says to Ananias in a, in a vision, um, I want you to go um, down to Straight Street and uh, restore uh, a man's sight. His name's Saul. He's from Tarsus. And Ananias is like, Lord, do you know about this guy? Now, of course, the Lord knows about him. He's the Lord. But Ananias is like, just to make sure we've got the same Saul from Tarshish, like, this is the guy that's going around killing, persecuting and killing Christians. And, you know, they're actually, he's actually here to bring people down from Jerusalem. Like, Lord, are you sending me there to die? And the Lord says, uh, no. Go. He is my chosen instrument. He is going to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel as well. He goes. Notice what he calls him in verse 17. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Because the Lord has told him he's a brother. You know, I, I know people who come to faith in Christ and some people so question their conversion, even though they're beginning to show fruit, that they're unwilling to embrace them into the kingdom the way God has called us to. Because they've been hurt by them, because they've been lied to by them, and they're unwilling to embrace them. They're like, how do we know this is real? And fruit begins to show, but how do we know it's going to last? I mean, if anyone had any reason to doubt, it's the believers in this day Saul hasn't done anything yet for the kingdom. Nothing. 
And he says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Which should show us how we need to act. You see, when, remember when Peter and Jesus are dialoguing with the rich young ruler after he's left, the rich young ruler left, and Peter says, Lord, we've left everything for you. And Jesus says, oh, anyone who has left everything for me will receive more in this life and eternal life in the life to come. He says, if, if you've left your family, brothers, and sisters, you'll receive family, brothers, and sisters. And Saul, in coming to faith in Christ, has lost everything. His whole life is now gone. Can you imagine how he felt knowing that, in his blindness, knowing that following Jesus meant everything about his way of life was now gone? His friends were gone. He was now going to the other side of persecution. He knew this. He was a persecutor. He was there when Stephen was stoned. He knew what was about to happen to him. He wasn't surprised. And I'm sure in those moments he felt very alone. He felt like, wow, no one's going to care for me. No one's going to walk alongside of me. They have every reason to reject me. Brother Saul. Imagine when he heard those words. Brother Saul, he's being welcomed into the family of the kingdom of God. And then God tells us his intended purpose for Saul, that he's going to go. And he's going to suffer much, but he's going to be God's chosen instrument to the Gentiles, to the kings. I mean, you, you see that in Philippians, right? What, what, is, what does Paul say at the end of Philippians? That those in Caesar's household send their greetings. Because when Paul was in prison, he said in, in the early parts of Philippians, right, that though they tried to shut me up, I just saw a new audience. That the gospel's now made its way to the palace guard. And then from the palace guard into Caesar's household. I mean, Paul, at some point during the end of his life, is desperate to get to Rome. To preach to the emperors there. So that the world would be saved. Well, something like scales falls off his eyes when... Ananias comes to pray for him and pray that he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul gets up and he's baptized. I mean, immediately after conversion. Notice what happened to Saul here. He's now a missionary for the gospel. Chapter 20, uh, Acts 9, 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished. And asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful. He baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. See, that's why I think for those days he sat there contemplating what it meant that Jesus is the Messiah. That for those days he thought they're trying to understand all the messianic promises and what it meant. Certainly, I believe he also reflected on Stephen's speech. And now, after those scales have fallen from his eyes, knowing that he was the persecutor, knowing that he would be persecuted, knowing that they would come after him, and courageously doing so, he goes right into the synagogue and starts to teach. And he teaches what he knows. Listen, I sometimes watch celebrities share the gospel. Sometimes I'm at events where they're sharing them, and I'm like, stick to what you know. It's like, stop preaching. It's terrible. And you're not articulating the gospel clearly. 
share the story of God's work in your life and then just stop. Right? Just stop. Now, now, please don't misunderstand this. I do think we can train people, we can walk with people. Why did Paul, why did Saul start so early? I mean, he was an expert on the law, and he was about to tell people what he knew. I've studied the law of my whole life. I've memorized whole portions of it. I know the prophetic word inside out, and I have now come to the realization Jesus is the Messiah. He taught what he knew. And that's what he did. He just began to prove to everyone, and they were astonished, it says. They couldn't believe that he could prove powerfully, baffling them, that Jesus is the Messiah. But they're asking all kinds of questions. Isn't this, isn't he, isn't? You see, conversion catches the attention of others. When you're truly converted, when God has truly gripped your heart, it catches the attention of others. Not just in the moment of conversion, not just in the days of conversion where people say, you were, you were so bitter and, and now you're filled with joy. You were so angry and now you're filled with peace. I mean, all you could talk about was sex and now you're talking about purity. You were always about what you could buy and now you're talking about what you can give. I mean, conversion with whatever sin people are enslaved with or sins are enslaved with is a transformative moment where God takes the way we were living and the things that we had believed in and he grants us a whole new way and purpose and it speaks to people around us. They see us and say, what's happened to you? You're not bitter. You're not angry. You're not greedy. What's happened to you? And it shouldn't just be at the point of conversion. Anybody willing to admit with me that God's still at work in here? He's not done with me yet. There are still so many things the Lord wants to work on in me. I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect dad. All kinds of things I can struggle with still. And God's at work. And my wife and my children and my friends and the people around me should be able to say, especially as sin is pointed out in me, God's still at work in him. And there's no explanation for the work that's going on in him except Jesus Christ the Lord. It shouldn't just be true at the point of conversion. Though there may be a radical defining moment then, it should be true throughout our lives. It should be true when we're 85 and our kids and grandkids say, Grandpa, Papa, Last year you were talking like this, and this year you're talking, that's what happened. Oh, the Lord's still working on me, kids. The Lord's still working on me. And I'm becoming more like him, praise his name. But they all get it, they all notice. Wow, isn't this Saul? Isn't he the one who did this? Wasn't he the one taking prisoners? John Stott says this, listen, because they see him preaching and teaching, they hear him defending that Jesus is the Messiah, because we often think God is going to take who we are and ruin us. God allows us to become the very person he intended us to be. Is that not good news? God's not out to ruin your life. When God's calling you to become like Jesus, he's not out to destroy you. The God who gave his life up for you on the cross is never out to hurt you. He's out to only give you life and life in abundance. That's what God wants to do. Is that not great news? And, and because that's true, because God 
has this plan for you. God wants to grant you the life as the creator of the universe who knows everything about you intricately. God grant, wants to grant you the life he always intended you to have. But you need to know in Paul's life, this means a lot of persecution. But it also means a declaring of the gospel. And there he is in the synagogue preaching, baffling the Jews. John Stott says this, divine grace does not trample on human responsibility, rather the reverse. It enables, for it enables human beings to be truly human beings. The grace of God so frees us from the bondage of our pride, prejudice, and self-centeredness as it enables us to repent and believe. It allows us to be truly human. It allows us to see the way that God intended humanity to live. It allows us to be the people that God wanted us to be. That's what salvation does. It doesn't ruin our lives. It rather grants us life. Stott also said this, and I really appreciate this in, in, the, in, the, in his commentary. I'm paraphrasing it. But he said, he said, Paul now has a new reverence for God, a new relationship with the church, and a new responsibility to the world. Paul now has a new reverence for God, a new relationship with the church, and a new responsibility to the world. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, uh, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So this, this little phrase, as some many, after many days had gone by, it's actually many days. It's three years. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that from Galatians 1, 17 to 18, where he spends three years in the Arabia, Damascus area, Paul says, if you read that later, Galatians 1, 17 and 18, and then he goes from there to Jerusalem, and he hadn't gone to Jerusalem yet. He talks about how he made that travel to Jerusalem. What's he doing? In the, like he, he, he has a lower in, from the opening, so he's, he's in Damascus. He likely leaves to go to Arabia, because he says that in Galatians, a neighboring, like it's, 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 it's right beside each other. It's like saying, I'm going to go from Hamilton to Burlington. He probably is going back and forth a bit, still teaching in Damascus and in Arabia, and then he's back here in Damascus, and people are so upset that they want to kill him. And his followers, after these three years, he now has disciples and followers. They take him, they lower him through a hole in the wall. Now, I want you to note, this is interesting, twice here, Paul's life is preserved. Why his and not Stephen's? Because it's not wrong to escape martyrdom. Listen, we're not supposed to be out there being like, bring it on. Like when, when it's time, Paul's time to be martyred, he's on. Stephen was willing to give his life. I mean, they rushed him, they took him, they stoned him. But he wasn't out there looking to be martyred. It's not like they came to kill Paul this and in a few verses later, Paul says, all right, time to die. No, they said, Paul, it's not your time yet. God's got something in store for you, and God preserves his life. How do you know the difference of when it's time for you to be martyred and time for you to escape? Some of you are hoping you never have to ask yourself that question in real life. Like, Dwayne, is this coming this afternoon? Tomorrow morning? 20 years from now? Never. You rely on the Holy Spirit. You grow on your understanding of the Holy Spirit. And at times, he'll tell you to keep going. And there may be a time in your life where he says, you're about to stand for me and then standing for me, your life is about to be forfeit. But it'll be forfeit because of the world, but not because of the kingdom. Like I said, when Stephen was being stoned, where the world was condemning and convicting him, God was acquitting and commending him. So he comes to Jerusalem. 
He tries to join the disciples, but they're afraid of him. So this is still three years later. That's how great his reputation was in Jerusalem. He hasn't been back in three years. They're not believing he's really a disciple. They're like, ah, like, woo. Like, we watched people die. We watched Stephen die. We know what happened. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul was on his journey and had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. I mean, there's confusion and doubt. And then Barnabas shows up and says, I want to offer a confirmation. I want to tell you who this man is. I want to give testimony of God's grace in his life. And then Saul stayed with them. And he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, and they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So again, preserving his life. Twice it happens. Twice it happens. Why do these people want to kill him so bad? Why? Because we want God to be who we make him out to be rather than who he is. We want God to be who we create rather than who he is. We'd like to create a loving God who isn't holy. We'd like to create a God who's in control but doesn't really offer any rules or parameters. We'd like to create a God who says it's okay to live believing whatever you want in whatever you want about your money, about your gender, about your sexuality. We want to create God in our image. We want to make him to be who we want him to be. And when someone stands in the gap and says, that's not God. When someone stands in the gap and says, God has spoken. When someone stands in the gap and says, he's revealed himself supremely in the person of Christ, but also in his word. When, when someone stands in the gap and says, he's holy. When someone stands in the gap and says the things about God that are true, and people realize in that moment that this isn't the depiction of God that they've created they realize that everything about their life is at stake. Does that make sense? They won't articulate that to you, but it is true. Everything about their life in that moment, what they believe, how they live, their moral compass, everything about their life, if what you're saying is true about God, can't be true. So should it surprise us if we receive murderous threats from a world who longs to take God and push him out of society and culture? Should it surprise us in any way when we're saying God is like this and they're saying there's no God? Or atheistic, right? Or agnostic. Maybe he's a God, maybe he's involved, maybe he's not involved. Or there's a God, but this is what he's like. I mean, Christians are doing this now today, right? Quote, unquote, Christians. We're telling you, you can, I mean, this has always been the case. I mean, you, you saw this in the, in the, as, as, as the, the people that started, let's say, the YMCA, YWCA, godly, God-fearing, honoring Christ people. Would you know that about the YMCA and YWCA today? What, young men's Christian, young women's Christian, right? What happened? Well, you can track this, that in the, in the early 1900s, people all of a sudden started to become liberal. Start to believe what they wanted about God. 
started to pick and choose from the Bible what they liked. I mean, you can read this, right? There's, I have books in my office. I have two volumes of books where they took the four Gospels, of a whole bunch of scholars, and the Gospel of Thomas, which I don't believe is a Gospel. Evangelicals don't. And they put it in a book, and they, and they color-coded what Jesus might have said, what Jesus really said, what Jesus did say, what Jesus didn't say. And I don't remember this. I'd have to go back and look. But the first time, you know, they said that, you know, 60% of what Jesus said is probably true. And then, and then it's all color-coded to a whole bunch of that's not true. And then a few years later, 20 years later, they redid it. And they were the reverse. 60% of what Jesus said probably isn't true. What? Because they've made God in their image. And they're willing to kill for it. They're willing to go for blood. But I want you to know what happened. Verse 31 and 32, I'll be done in a moment. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. God granted them a time of peace for this season. And then he strengthened them. They lived in the fear of the Lord and awe of him and what he's doing. The Holy Spirit encouraged them. And the church increased in number. I have been so encouraged by our young adults. I was there on Friday night. They could ask me any question they wanted about the Bible, God, life, whatever. And I just wrote questions down. And I took a long time and answered them. If you ever think you're here for a long time, in fact, we, we went to do our family devotion on Saturday. Ethan, sorry, I'm just going to throw you under the bus here, buddy, but I love you. And, uh, and, and Ethan's David, I'm like, I'm like, we're going to do our family devotion. And Ethan's like, I really got to use the bathroom right now. He said, you guys can do it without me because last night you did family devotion for two and a half hours at youth, like at young adults. Like, Ethan's like, you, two hours, you were just talking. And he said, so I'm good. Uh, I said, no, you're not. Um, so I waited until he was done. Um, but these young adults just asking questions and letting me answer. And, and what, what's happened in the last number of months? The last couple of Fridays, I've heard that some of these guys have sat here in this church till 1.30 in the morning talking and praying with each other. And there's been conviction of sin, and there's been confession of sin, and there are some young adults, some of them from our midst who are showing up, who used to come to youth, who are now coming back out again because God's at work in their lives again. And I've watched some of the lives of the young Karen men be totally transformed. And they're watching this happen in each other's lives. And they know there's no explanation whatsoever, none whatsoever, except God's power is at work. That's it. He's at work. And they gather to worship, and they gather to pray, and they gather to hear from the word, and they gather to discuss, and then they play sports after, and perfectly no one loses their attitude during sports. It's, it looked pretty good on Friday night. People looked like they were doing well. And then you know what's happened? They've been concerned about witness. Some of them have been inviting other friends out, unsaved friends, that have come and participated and said, wow, God is here. They don't know what that means yet, but they know that God is here. And do you know that God can do that in any of our small groups or community groups, in any of our covenant groups, in a gathering of this size, with our youth group, 
our children's ministry or our young adults. He's not done with us yet. Is that not good news? He's God. You guys can come up to lead us in closing song. So you shouldn't be surprised if some breathe murderous threats against you, just like Saul did. And you should never doubt God's ability to save. Amen? He is able to save to the uttermost. You shouldn't be surprised if they breathe murder threats against you because their whole life, everything about them, just like us, is dependent upon their ideology or philosophy or belief system. The way they live, everything about them, everything about your neighbor, everything about your colleague at work, everything about that person sitting beside you at school who's not a believer, everything about you rests on what they believe in. And so you shouldn't be surprised when you're saying something different that they're going to breathe murderous threats against you. But you also shouldn't doubt that God is able to save them because the accomplished work of Christ, him coming and living and dying, defeating sin and Satan and death, rising again on the third day, he is able to save anyone, anywhere, anytime because he delights and loves to save. Is that not good news? And we celebrate him. He is a great God who loves to work and act in our lives. And so I long that the people I question most when it comes to salvation will be the people that God will choose to save so that my faith will be encouraged. The Holy Spirit will offer me that strength and encouragement. And we'll see a church grow. Not because we're about numbers. You know what I would love? Please don't misunderstand that if you're a guest here today and you're visiting or checking us out or you're, um, you know, you're online watching because we have a lot of people watching online at times over, you know, 130 last week. And I'm like, who are you people? Glad you're there. Really glad you're there. Some of you I know. I know you know because you'll send me texts and emails. And, and, but so many of you, I don't know who you are. Who are you people? Um, you, you know what I long for? That this church, I was speaking to them just, you know, there's a camera right there. You may not know that. That's the camera I'm talking to. You know what I long for? That out of our youth ministries and hub and coffees on, out of our work with the Quran and the Portuguese, out of our lives lived well in school and neighborhoods and work, that each of us would have the joy of seeing someone in our life over the next year come to faith in Christ. I don't want to be a next cool thing where a whole bunch of Christians just come and join us. But oh, I would make room for all kinds of non-believers who God encounters to join us because he's saving. Because he's saving. Would you pray with me? We're thankful that you saved the Apostle Paul. We're thankful for his ministry and work. And we're thankful, God, that it's a reminder that you can save anyone. God, as we worship you, the God who saves, we pray in these moments you would be with us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.